0: Well, i told this story before uh, a few years ago. In 2007, I was working at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in Charlotte, and uh, they were building this thing called the Billy Graham Library. Anybody ever been there? It's a beautiful facility. It's a great experience. I recommend you go. It's only, not, you know, it's only an hour away in Charlotte. And uh, you get to experience all uh, about the ministry and life of Dr. Graham and everything. And so I was working there part-time. I had a couple of part-time jobs there, and uh, they finally finished this um, library, so they're going to dedicate this thing, and they bring in all of the uh, living presidents. Of course, they bring living presidents. They just bring all the all the presidents, not <laughs> all, all the dead presidents there. Um, uh, so they were all there, and uh, in a tent in a parking lot, and uh, and it was you know it was amazing to hear those guys share of their to really take a knee, you know, before God. And it was very authentic, and, and a share of their love for Dr. Graham, uh, to hear of um, George Beverly Shea and Cliff Barrows get up and sing How Great Thou Art, I think Beverly Shea at that time was like 100 years old, I'm not exaggerating, to sing How Great Thou Art in that tent, in a parking lot, you just felt the presence of God, and it was a remarkable thing for a, young, a younger man. Um, and so to hear them sort of talk about Dr. Graham and how much they appreciate him, and and each each turn, took turns speaking. I won't do my Bill Clinton impersonation, but, um, <laughs> but then when Dr. Graham got up and he spoke, he said a few words. He, the first thing he said was, I feel like I've been attending my own funeral. <laughs> He's being eulogized by these guys, you know. And then um, he, kind of, he kind of remarked on how for so long he... Uh, counseled, of course, presidents of different political parties, and he walked that line, you know, of, of being scandal-free and, uh, and navigating all of that for so long. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And he said, you know, when you wear the pants of the Union and the jacket of the Confederacy, you're going to get shot at by both sides. And I never forgot that line. I thought that was so great. You know, his whole ministry was part of it. He, you know, you're going to get it from both sides. And it got me thinking that, you know, people in general, uh, we can be like a walking civil war. We can have sort of dueling allegiances. Uh, we can feel this tension of sin and righteousness, of, of walking in grace, but also walking in sanctification or growing in holiness is what that word really means. And it's a lifelong process, right? But we can feel that struggle within us churning within us, that even for the Christian, or not, but especially for the Christian, it's actually maybe a little bit harder, because you know the difference, and you become maybe more of a target for the enemy sometimes, it's easier, I guess, to be ignorant, but for the Christian, you know, you know what you ought to do, right, but you don't always do it, we know what we should do, or should say, but we don't always do it, or say it, and we may have guilt or shame about the past, and we carry all that stuff, and we feel this, you know, this inner dialogue, right, it's always there, and how do, we, how, do we, how do we navigate that? It's sort of like those old cartoons from the 40s and 50s. I used to watch them all the time, like Looney Tunes or Warner Brothers, and there'd be the devil on one shoulder, right, and the angel on the other. They use that a lot for some reason. But there was all, and it's true, though. I mean, there is that sort of back and forth of every day, you know, we're navigating that of what's right, what's wrong. Like, the idea of struggling against sin is very much in the New Testament. It's all over the place. And like Hebrews 12.4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. That the author of Hebrews is like, okay, yeah, it's, you are working toward becoming more like Jesus and continue going in that direction. It, it will never, you always need to keep um, going toward God, you know. In uh, Matthew 18.9, Jesus Famously said, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. Obviously, this isn't literal language. It's figurative. But, you know, he's saying whatever does it is that causes you to sin, remove it from your life so that you can enter into life uh, more abundantly. It's better to do that than to continue down that path. He is, Jesus is saying there is something you can do uh, about that. Uh, you're not a slave to that. Hebrews 12.6, the author of Hebrews would go on to say that the, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He chastises every child whom he accepts. That, that in many ways, in the life of faith, God will sometimes wound us in our sin in order to heal us, right? He will sometimes put a finger on the thing that you don't want to do or you know you should not do. Uh, And it is for your good, right? Like, that's what you would hope God would do, right? You would hope God would acknowledge that. And I don't want a God just like me. Do you want that? You certainly don't want the God of Clark over your life or or whatever. (laughs) I want a God that has different perspective than I do, that sees everything. And that's, sometimes the Holy Spirit will convict us of something because he's holy, right? He's not like the force in Star Wars, sort of this nebulous thing. Like, he's holy. Because God is holy, he's perfect, he's uncompromising. And he's uncompromising because he's perfect. And he is the standard of good, right? That's ultimately who God is. He is the standard of all that is good and righteous and true and perfect. So he has the right to put a finger on the thing that I know I shouldn't do. To see my sin for what it is. To challenge it. You know, so... Yeah, what, what do we do with all of that? Clearly, we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives on a day-to-day basis, and that's definitely true, because you can't overcome this with self-determination only. You can't overcome it with uh, education only, all as good as those things are. Ultimately, it has to be done by the grace of God. It's entirely an action of God on our behalf. And like I said earlier, coming to Christ, becoming a Christian, it doesn't automatically solve this problem and this tension of sin and righteousness, of of freedom and all those things in interplay within our hearts and minds and souls, actually, the more you grow in your faith, the more you become aware of that struggle, sometimes it'll be harder. Yes, yes, because you're aware of it. But here's the deal. I would rather struggle against whatever it is than be ignorant of it. Yes. Yes. I would, and even worse, to be aware of it and be passive and just say, eh, it's, uh, eh sort of like Seinfeld, like, eh, it, it is, it'll be fine. No, like, I would rather struggle against whatever it is, like Hebrews is saying, because it implies that God's working on me, you know, that he hasn't given up on me, that, that he loves me enough to call me out, you know. It implies that there's a positive resistance, if you will. In many ways, brokenness over your personal sin is a sign of a true Christian. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is given to those who look up into heaven and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As opposed to someone that goes, I'm arrogant and I'm a prideful, self-righteous, religious person. God, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is not for that person. It's for the humble and contrite of spirit. I will not deny that person. So the, the true Christian realizes we don't need to just be renovated. We need a new nature. We need a daily refilling of the Holy Spirit by faith, and we can and should ask for that. In the book of Romans, Paul gets very um, vulnerable, and he shares uh, very much of his heart on what I'm talking about, this struggle. Because remember, Paul was like, the Pharisee of Pharisees, Jewish, whip smart, rich, had it all, and he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, the road to Emmaus, and his life is transformed, and now he's struggling with, I was perfect under the law of Moses. Perfect. Blameless. And yet now I've received this crazy amount of grace. And how do I make sense of that? Like it. It doesn't compute with this, like, legalistic world I came from, you know? And Romans is a lot about that. He's writing to Jewish Christians from, he's imprisoned in Rome, and he's telling them he's, and Romans is a masterclass of theology, just an amazing, just inspired by God book of the Bible. And Romans 7 is a systematic presentation of the gospel, and not just of the gospel, but how the gospel is lived out. Now, Romans 7, we're getting ready to read part of it, is, really spells out part of the problem. And he, he's very open about it. But then Romans 8, we'll get into later, what gives you more of the solution. Romans 8, like Jeff says, may be the favorite chapter of the Bible. But Romans 7, 14, this is what Paul says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions. You ever feel that way? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I, do, now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, to want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a new law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's getting kind of dramatic here. For all the the drama people, (laughs) who will rescue me? Of course, he knows the answer to that. It's a rhetorical question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. So Paul is like getting super honest, super, super authentic here. And he is admitting to all of us that he's a human being. He's a person. And so for those of you that resonate with some of what he's saying, you should because he has faults and struggles just like all of us do. And he's wrestling with this tension of am I enough? Why do I feel so wretched even though I love Jesus? Why do I feel like a failure even though I know and I love God with all my heart? I know people here have felt this way before. You might not want to admit it, but you have. I have. Why do why do I feel failure? Even though I know God's word is true, what's right? What's wrong? How do I live into this life of faith? How do I manage my guilt? If that's you, you're in good company. You're in great company, actually, with everybody in the room, but also with the Apostle Paul. Because he's having this metaphysical dialogue, and he's just writing it out, and we get to read it. He writes a lot about sin. If you see sin as singular, historic Christian theology, Paul would say this, John Wesley would say this, if it's a singular sin, he's talking about like just the general sinful nature of people. But if it's ever plural, sins, then he's talking about his own actions. And so you see that distinction a lot, he kind of goes back and forth between, I hate the sin that's within me, but then he says sins as if he's referring to stuff that he's done in his life. I mean, I'm sure he's thinking about the times that he, wanted, he had Christians stoned and killed uh, for their faith. So he probably wrestled a lot with his guilt and his shame of his past. But, you know, Christianity has always been a little bit, um, some people would say, pessimistic about the ability of human beings to overcome ultimate things. I wouldn't say we're Christianity's pessimistic about that. I would say Christianity is realist about that. He is simply just stating what is, that you and I, we cannot atone for our sin. We can't, right? I've said this before, but when people say to you, just forgive yourself, just forgive yourself. I get what you're saying is, hey, don't be so hard on yourself, and that's fine, but you ultimately can't forgive your sin, and I can't forgive my own sin. Only Jesus forgives sin. He's the only one. He's the only one. So ultimately, you and I can't forgive ourselves. It's, that's just a reality, So Paul's being super honest. And again, he's wrestling with this this feeling of, I know the law of Moses. I was raised under it. I memorized most of it. And I know it's spiritual. I know it's good. But sin has used it as an instrument for death, as he would say. Now, what is he saying? How, How did that happen? Well, sin can take a good thing the law of God and twist it and turn it into a wooden legalism that 's impossible to navigate and if anything, Paul would go on to say this the law is actually a good thing because it shows me my need for grace it shows me it 's impossible for anybody to fully um, satisfy it, and so only without god 's help we can 't do it because if we try to do it ourselves, we turn to a bunch of religious bigots and we turn into a bunch of you know, Pharisees you think we're better than other people. So we need the grace of God. It's like a wooden legalism. It's like, consider this parable of a, of, of a tailor named Hans. Sort of like an uh, old parable from Germany. There's a famous tailor named Hans, and a rich man sought out this tailor because he heard such great things about this guy. And he came to him, and he gave him a bunch of money, and he said, make me a custom suit. And whatever it costs, I want the best you can make me. So this tailor named Hans, he makes this tremendous suit, and the customer comes and picks it up. And when the customer puts it on, he found that one sleeve was going this way, and the other one was going this way. And it was all bulgy and out of shape. And he pulled, and he struggled, and he wrenched, and he contorts, and he finally gets his body into it. And he feels so proud. He's like, oh, I have the most beautiful suit of clothes in town. Everybody's going to think I'm the coolest and he gets on the bus and he sits next, why is a rich guy riding the bus? I don't know. But he gets on the bus and he sits next to somebody and, and, he, and the, the man next to him asks, oh, did Hans the tailor make that for you? And he says, absolutely, I paid good money for this suit. And the man said, amazing, I knew Hans was a good tailor, but I had no idea he could make a suit fit so perfectly for someone as deformed as you. And that's often what the church can do. You can get an idea of what the Christian faith should look like, and then you push and shove people in the most grotesque positions to fit them into it, and that's ultimately what the law had become for Paul and people of that day especially. It was all about that, and they externally thought they looked great, but inwardly, Jesus said, you're a whitewashed tomb. You're dead on the inside. You don't know the love of God. You, 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 you know the letter of the law, but you don't know the spirit of it. You've totally missed the point. The law isn't bad, but it was pushing people into this grotesque uh, way of living your life. And so then Paul has this revelation in Romans 7 and especially in Romans 8. He realizes that my religious acts, the law, cannot stop sin. It cannot stop death. If anything, the law highlights your inability to uphold it. Religious acts cannot save you. They cannot. It's only faith in Christ that saves a human soul. That's it. He cannot make you righteous apart from his grace in your life. And Paul would go on to say yeah, basically the ceremonial, the, the, the civil law, the law of Moses, it's over. It's atoned for. It's complete. The moral law still stands. The Ten Commandments, well, we still try and uphold that, don't we? A lot of the moral precepts in the Old Testament, those still stand. But you, so, so, so you can eat your shrimp. You can eat your lobster. You can wear clothing of two fabrics. God doesn't care. But the moral law that's perfectly embodied in Jesus, he fully embodies the moral law. It's, it still stands. Paul will go on to say that about life in the spirit, which we'll read about in Romans 8. But if you read the great saints of history, you would think that there are these sort of supermen and superwomen that they never had struggles, but that's not true. There are people just like me and you. And if anything, the closer they got to God, the deeper in their faith they got, you you hear language like Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me? If anything, the closer you get to the light, the more the shadows of your life become more pronounced. St. Teresa of... Uh, said this she said it's true that we cannot be free from sin but at least our let our sins not always be the same ones or the same (laughs) I love that Saint Augustine said who famously struggled with sins of the flesh particularly in his younger years he said but my sin was this that I looked for pleasure beauty and truth not in him but in myself does that sound familiar does that sound familiar today with this situation We are raising, a, we have a generation of narcissists. It's not a judgment, it's just a, it's a statement of fact. And it's not, people haven't changed. This is 1,500 years ago. And Augustine is saying, I was all about me. I was worshiping myself and in and, and his other creatures. But the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. Broad is the way to destruction, Jesus said. many, many people take it. But narrow is the way to life. And few people find it. And Augustine would go on to say how grateful he was that he found the narrow way through Christ to life. And Paul echoes this statement. What a wretched man I am. Here's the rub. Many Christians stay in that place. I'm just wretched. I'll never be enough. You ever feel that way? You look in the mirror and you go, man... I suck. Is this the best you can do, God? Your word says I'm like like creating my mother's womb and all that, but man, I don't know. Be be careful with staying in that place, though. God doesn't want you to stay there. I was watching a video of a pastor of a large church out west, and he was taking Q&A from his parishioners. They had an open mic, and people would come up and ask questions, and this one young woman came up with tears in her eyes, distraught, emotional, and she said, I feel so unworthy to take communion. Sometimes I don't even get up to do it. And this pastor goes, Okay, let me ask you some questions. Do you believe that the work of Jesus on the cross to atone for your sin was enough for you today? And she said, Yes. Do you believe he's Savior and Lord of your life, that his work of grace is sufficient in all of its ways? Yes, I believe that. Do you believe that he loves you more than any person has ever loved you? Yes, I think I believe that. He said, so what's the problem? And she said, I just feel so unworthy. And the pastor said, well, yeah. You're in good company. That's why you're here. The church is not a... It's not a cruise ship for sinners, it's a hospital for sinners, you know? It's not a hotel for saints. Yeah, if you feel unworthy, the kingdom of God is not far from you. You're close. <laughs> because the more you become aware of your sin, that means he's getting close. And, and he, 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 may, he might shine light on stuff you don't want him to. But it's because he loves you, right? Right? It's because he may, he may press you in the sin to wound you in that place so that you'll find freedom and healing and, and restoration there. And only he can do that. It's like the woman at the well when he spoke to this woman that was an outcast and had been with five different men married and, and um, was, would go get water in the middle of the day because she, she didn't want to be around people. Everyone hated her. And Jesus sought her out and he knew exactly her situation. And, and he, he, as a prophet, knew exactly her life, and he didn't hesitate to tell her exactly her story. Not to condemn or to judge, but to simply say, I know what you've been through, and I love you in the midst of it. Don't stay in that place of shame. I've come to set people like you free. It reminds me of Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How many times have we heard that? But you think that promise is for somebody else, don't you? Don't do that. That promise is for you. When you feel poor in spirit, I'm not enough. The kingdom of heaven is for you. I'm not, I'll never be enough. Yeah, you won't. But fall at his feet. Admission of weakness is not a place to stay in a place of shame but to allow room for more of God's strength and grace. To bring your unworthiness to the one who is worthy. This is the answer. That's, that's all we can do. As Paul said later in Romans 12, give your life as a living, living sacrifice. That's all you can bring to him is your brokenness. And that's all he wants. So he can restore your life. So that when you realize this and you live into that more, you can begin to say things like this. When I die, I live it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. With Christ involved in your life, it's all upside. It's all upside. It's all going to win. Left to ourselves, you can't live a perfect Christian life. And neither can I. But through Christ in you, you can. Paul later said in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. This, the devil... That's all he's got is condemnation. That's all he wants to say to you is condemnation. But it's always, always lies. Always. I'm going to quote the late, great Tim Keller, and then we'll pray. He says it so well, as he always did. Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. You're here today because you're in good company. And find joy in the struggle because it means that God is not finished with you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that all we can bring to you is our lives, not our money, not our accomplishments, none of that. As good as those things might be, ultimately, Lord, we can bring to you our lives. And that's all you've ever wanted. Every time, Jesus, someone came to you for healing, you, you always, always healed them. You never turned anybody away. You never checked your watch or your phone, and, so you didn't have time. You always have time. You made time. You're not in a hurry. Lord, we come to you with open hearts, open hands. Highlight the things in our lives that aren't pleasing to you. Remove them from us and lead us into life everlasting. Help us live into this victory that the Bible promises. That we can bring to you our poverty of spirit. The ways we know we fall short. And you meet us there. That amazing grace. Bring your healing. And I pray, Lord, that you would prove your word to be true and to encourage anyone that, yes, we may sow with tears, but that we will reap with songs of joy because of your work in us. Lord, we run to you in Jesus' name.